Well, tonight we're going to be looking at facing death unafraid. One might assume when we talk about the, Ref- the book of Revelation that the book of Revelation, since it talks about the hereafter, should talk about the hereafter, right? It should talk about what happens after death. And so we're going to be looking at how the book of Revelation does give great insights into this. There are some passages in the book of Revelation that we can't understand without understanding what the Bible teaches about death. And so we're going to be looking at that tonight and tomorrow night. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 20. I wanted to show you that passage. I wanted to show you how it is that it's so important that we understand this topic. And um, we're going to be beginning in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. And uh, Danny, could you just see if this, uh, the black USB cable's plugged in? That would help. Um, maybe it just won't work um, on, the, on my computer. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. And this is what it says. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. So what does John see in, in heaven? And he sees, he sees this happening. What does he see? He sees thrones and he sees what? He sees souls, those who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, nor had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Already some of us could be confused if we're not careful. <laughs> Here we have souls, but they're living, right? They're, they're in heaven or they're on thrones. They're living and reigning with Christ a thousand years. What is Revelation talking about? How can this be possible? And we're going to be looking more directly at Revelation 20 and the thousand years in our study tomorrow evening when we talk about the good news about hell. But tonight we're going to continue looking at the, the, uh, the subject of what happens when we die. Um, the rest of the dead, it says in verse 5, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. So what is this all about? How are some alive and some dead? Some are called souls, but yet it says they're alive, they're living and reigning with Christ. One thing is certain, when we look at the New Testament, we see that the early Christian church possessed hope beyond the grave. After Jesus died on the cross, his friends placed his body in a borrowed tomb. Remember, Roman, the Roman governor Pilate sent a guard and his soldiers sealed the tomb uh, with a Roman seal so that no one could take the body. You see, the priests remembered that Jesus had said that he would rise again the third day, didn't they? And they were afraid that the disciples might, might, might uh, fake the resurrection, come and steal his body. And they wanted to make sure, they wanted to make sure that Jesus stayed in that tomb. After all, they had fought for a long time to have him dead. They weren't about to have him alive once again. No one could take his body now. A hundred soldiers guarding the tomb, the Roman seal upon the stone. No one that is except, except the Father. Because early Sunday morning, friends, while it was yet dark, a, an angel descended from heaven and with effortless ease rolled back the stone that covered the tomb where Jesus rested and he called Christ forth. The risen Savior stepped forth in complete and total victory over death. He was a mighty conqueror. The soldiers were struck down as dead men by the glory of the angel. And this became the story that rang from house to house, from city to city. The disciples were telling the story of Christ's resurrection. It was the driving power of the early Christian church. Their confidence in the resurrection stood in bright contrast to the belief of the pagans who had no hope beyond the grave, or just a nebulous hope beyond the grave. The Christians had the truest hope. The grave was not the final end. Those who died in Christ would someday live again. What good news. The catacombs, if you were to visit the city of Rome today, there are a number of catacombs, and many of these became used as sort of illegal burial grounds when the Christians weren't allowed to, to, to be buried in, in the city. And um, 
The Christians, for example, if you go to San Sebastian catacombs and some of the other catacombs outside the city, you'll find they're filled with tombs. Many of them were Christian tombs, and you can tell by the insignias that are on the tomb. There are symbols that are Christian symbols. The epitaphs on the tombs of those who died in, in pagan hopelessness over and over are saying sorrowful words, goodbye forever or goodbye for eternity. But when you look at the Christian's tombs, when you see the epitaphs that are written on the tombs of the, 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 where the Christians were buried, it's very different. It's goodbye until the morning or good night, good night until the morning, goodbye until we meet again. Their tombs were ins- inscribed with hope. Their tombs were inscribed with uh, the promise of the resurrection and the promise of the Savior. This is what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Now, um, I like the way he inserted amen right there in the middle of his statement because he's wanting us to know that he has conquered death. You see, he's not only the one who was alive and was dead, he, or who is alive and was dead, he's also alive forevermore. He will never die. Because Jesus has been through the portals of the tomb and he has conquered death. And he goes on and he says, And I have the keys of Hades and of death. The hope of the resurrection is the foundation of the Christian's hope. You see, Paul argues that there is life after death. If we look at Paul's writings very closely, we recognize that he says there is certainly life after death. But that life after death is only after the resurrection. He clearly states, and we're going to look at it here together, he clearly states that if there is no resurrection, there's no hope for the Christian. Look with me there at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 16. It says, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have what? perished. Listen, he's saying, look, if there's, if there's not a resurrection, then we're in big trouble. If there's not a resurrection, those who have fallen asleep, and I don't think he's talking about what we're going to do this evening when we, our head hits the pillow, right? And he's talking about those who have died. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, he says, without the resurrection. The resurrection is very, very central to the Christian's hope. And this is something that uh, Paul wants us to understand. But to understand why he says what he says here, we must understand what the Bible teaches about death. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to know what the Bible teaches, don't you? I want to know what the Bible teaches. It doesn't matter if if it goes contrary to an idea that I've held for a long time. I want to know the truth. I really do. And I want, you know, I, I want... I've often told my friends and family and, and those I meet and even, um, even those I, I have the opportunity to study with, listen, I want to learn. Show me from God's Word. That's all I want. I just want to know what God's Word says. But when I, when I look at what God's Word says, I must look at it not just in one passage. I must look at everything the Bible says, right? That's how we understand God's Word. Jesus Himself used that principle when he studied the Bible, beginning with Moses and all the scriptures. He taught them. He opened to the scriptures the things that, uh, concerning himself. He gave a Bible study. It wasn't just on one passage. He, he showed many passages. Isaiah says, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. No, we don't want to take them out of context. You know, if we're not careful, we can, we can lift a phrase out of the Bible and, and use it out of context, and it doesn't say what we're trying to make it say, right? It's like the fellow who said, I really want to know God's will, so he took his Bible, and he, he closed his eyes, and he flipped the pages. And um, as, he, as he came to the page, he, he put his finger on the page, and he opened his eyes to see what the verse says, and, and it said, um, Judas went out and hanged himself. Well, he didn't know what that meant, so he closed his eyes again. He figured he could find another verse that might clarify it. Closed his eyes again, and he, he put his finger on a verse, and he opened his eyes, and you'll never guess what it said. Go thou and do likewise. <laughs> so he said, this isn't going so well. So he closed his eyes again. He flipped, his, he flipped the pages of his Bible, and he put his finger on a verse, and it said, what thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> so obviously going here a, little, here a little and there a little can, 
can be dangerous if we don't look at what the Bible is saying in each passage, make sure we're, we're using it as it's meant to be used, right? But we want to see what the Bible says about death. Let's look at why Paul would say the resurrection is the hope of the Christian. Let's wa- see why Paul would say without the resurrection, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Let's look at uh, why death came upon man in the first place. You'll remember it was because of sin, wasn't it? I believe the Bible account. I know there's a lot of skeptics out there today who say science makes it hard to believe the Bible account. Listen, I have, I have one argument. None of us were there. It's not observable. And um, I don't know what's happened since then. A lot of it hasn't been observed either, right? We've been observing for the last 150 years, even much less than that, a lot of the scientific measurements. And um, the fact of the matter is we're making assumptions. And uh, science really can't tell us where we came from or where we're going. God's Word does. And that's really the realm of philosophy to do that anyway. But anyway, that's another subject. We talked about it already. We talked about the hero of Revelation seals. Death came upon mankind because he was separated by sin from God. And God is the source of life. Amen? So when sin separates us from God, we are separated from the source of life. We do not have inherent within ourselves immortality. We can't live forever because God is the source of life. And in order for us to live forever, we have to, we have to be connected to Him. The Bible says that He that has the Son has life, right? And so through Jesus Christ, we do have eternal life. But it's not in us innately. It's not in us inherently. So death came upon man because of the uh, sin, because we chose to disobey. And this is what God told Adam and Eve. You shall eat of the herb of the field and the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are and to what? And to dust you shall return. That's what he said. To dust, from dust you are and to dust you shall return. Let's notice how God created Adam. We read about it in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. If you're reading in the King James Version this evening, you'll see that man became a living what? A soul, a living soul. Now, we tend to think of souls as disembodied spirits. At least some people do. That's sort of the popular culture. But the Bible's pretty clear, and the Hebrew word here is very clear. When man became alive, he became a living soul. In fact, I'm a pilot, and, and it's very interesting. When we, when, we, um, when we read in the Bible, there's a couple of things. Like when Paul was shipwrecked, we see how many souls were on board. It's not as though they had a container of a whole bunch of disembodied spirits that were there, right? They were talking about how many people were on board. And when, when, you're, when you're a pilot and you have an emergency situation, thankfully I've never had a situation like this, but I've actually heard them transpiring on the radio on the same frequency with the same controllers that I've been on. And um, it makes you a little sweaty just listening to it. As I remember I was in Florida one time a couple years ago and... Um, and I was flying along, and um, uh, the, some twin Cessna came on the frequency and said to the controller, he said, we have an emergency. Um, we have low fuel. That can be an emergency. And um, unfortunately, two pilots a week run out of fuel and while they're in the air. Um, it's not a real good idea. But uh, we have an emergency. We've, and this was something bizarre that even the controller didn't understand. He said, we've shut down one engine as a precaution. Um, I guess he thought he was going to still be able to limp in on the fuel from the other tank. I don't know exactly. But there's a question you know is coming. The controller every single time asks it. How many souls on board? It's, it's a carryover from the shipping days. When he says, how many souls on board... They always ask, how many souls on board, how many minutes fuel, or how much fuel? And um, that's, that's, if there's an emergency declared, they're going to ask that. How many souls on board? And I'm listening to this. And um, in fact, when he switched over to the airport, the tower frequency, I switched over on my second radio to listen on it too, just to see what happened. You know, I hoped he, hoped he made it there. You hate to think of, of, of someone in that situation. But how many souls on board? That doesn't mean how many 
disembodied spirits, right? It simply means how many people. The Bible's pretty clear, and this is the way the Bible uses it too, the way we sometimes use it in the uh, common usage today. The Bible says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and that man became a living soul. So God took the elements of the earth and made a body for man. When he was finished fashioning this body for man, he had only a lifeless corpse, only a body, and it took something for God to make that a living being. The Bible says here that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. How do you explain the breath of life? I don't think it was just air pressure like we're thinking today, you know, breath. There's more than that. The Bible, the Bible, uh, the Bible um, describes God doing this as if you and I could do it, but we can't, can we? We can't breathe the breath of life into a lifeless corpse. And uh, in fact, this, this uh, mathematical equation could be described this way, the body plus the breath or the, and it's more than just air, isn't it? It's, 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 it's something more than air. It's what God breathes into. It's the gift of life, and it equals a living soul. So when death happens, when we die, what happens is really just the reverse of that. Remember what God told to Adam and Eve? Of dust you are, and of dust you shall what? Return. So when a person dies, what you really have happening is a living person minus the breath, and you simply have a body left, don't you? The breath returns to God who gave it. Now let's look at how Ecclesiastes describes this. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. You might say, well, that says spirit. It doesn't say breath, but those words are used interchangeably in the Old Testament. In fact, it's not, it's not, it's not too hard for us to understand how the same root could be used. If we talk about inspiration, what are we talking about? Well, on a physical sense, we're talking about breathing in. That's an inspiration, right? But we also talk about inspiration as in the Spirit, right? The Spirit inspires. It's the same exact root. We breathe, we are inspired. The breath, the Spirit. It's used interchangeably even in our everyday use. We don't think of it that way, but this is how the Old Testament uses it as well. The dust returns to the earth as it was. The Spirit returns to God who gave it, or the breath. This is an example. Job 27, verse 3 says, All the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my what? My nostrils. You see how he's using those two terms interchangeably? Breath, Spirit. Breath, Spirit. Those are used interchangeably in the Old Testament. Um, the, you, you, we continue on when we see in Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day, his what? Thoughts perish. Now, this is, these are, there's some pretty clear statements in the Bible about what happens when a person dies. And I just have to be honest with what the Bible says, right? Don't we have to be honest if we're going to handle the Word of God? We have to say, what does it mean? What does it say? And when we, when we find verses that contradict other verses, we have to recognize that the contradiction isn't in the Bible, it's in our understanding of the Bible, right? We have to realize that there's, there's something that we have to do to understand. And, and my goal is to look at everything the Bible says on a subject and then fashion my thinking such that it, my thinking isn't contradicted by anything the Bible says. That's our goal, isn't it? So here it says, his breath goes forth. We talked about that spirit, that breath that God gave. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Now, this might sound like just a, just a, just a depressed King David, except the other Bible writers use similar language. Solomon also agreed with him when he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and verse uh, 9, uh, that's not, that's Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and verse, what is that, 5 or 6? I don't know why sometimes, that was just fine on my slide a little while ago, but um, I want to make sure I give you the right verse here, so I'll look it up, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and um, we're beginning with verse 5. For the living know that they will what? Die, but the dead know how much? How much? The dead know nothing, Ecclesiastes says, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And it continues on, and in verse 6 says, also their love and their hatred and their envy have now perished. So how much does Solomon say the dead know? How much do they feel? No love, no hatred, 
no envy, nothing. That's what Solomon says. Psalm 115 verse 17 says something similar. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. I believe the Bible is actually very clear. Job agrees with David and Solomon when he says, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait until my change comes. Remember that phrase, change, change comes. You will call and I will answer you. What's he talking about? You will call and I will answer you. The Bible's going to explain that if, we, uh, if we're just patient as we go on this evening. If I wait, Job 17 verse 13, the grave is my house. I have made my bed in darkness. If I wait, the grave is my house. I've made my bed in darkness. Job 14 verse 10, but man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? So man lies down and does not rise till, till when? Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. That's what Job describes. Job describes death as a sleep, doesn't he? He describes it as something that is awaiting time. He agrees with what David and, and Solomon said, that the dead don't know anything. They don't praise the Lord. They don't have a memory. They don't have feelings. They are simply waiting, waiting until the change comes. Keep that in mind because it's important. This is not bad news, friends. As everything in God's Word, it's good news. It's hopefulness. And Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ who, was, who is alive. He holds the keys of, of hell and the grave. Job 14, verse 13, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Notice that Job repeatedly has used what word to describe death? Sleep, right? Over and over, he's talked about sleep. Other Bible writers do the same. Um, Psalm 13, verse 3, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of what? The sleep of death. The prophet Nathan told King David what would happen to him when his time to, came, time to die came. And this was in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt what? Sleep with thy fathers. Hundreds of times in the Old Testament, the Bible says, and so and so died and slept with his fathers, right? Um, this is really talking about death. It's talking about death as a sleep. And which shouldn't surprise us, even if we haven't, even if we haven't studied this um, previously, we can see it even in the books of Daniel and Revelation. Uh, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's going to be a time when those who are sleeping are going to awake, right? There's going to be a time when there is a resurrection. Jesus himself, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, Jesus himself uses this uh, same terminology to describe death. You'll remember that Je Jesus had three special friends with whom he spent considerable amounts of time. These were friends that he was able to come and to, and to fellowship with at their home in Bethany. Lazarus was one of them, but two, he had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And um, the Bible tells this story in, in John chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. A certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary which had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So this is someone who was very dear and near to Jesus. They were close friends. And his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. This is someone that's a special friend of yours. This is someone you care a lot about. And they were sure that's all they needed to tell Jesus. I mean, after all, Jesus was the great healer, right? Jesus is the one who could, who could command and, 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 and people would be healed. And, and I mean, miracles would take place. And they were sure. I mean, if Jesus would, would, would perform miracles to heal people he had never met before, surely he would perform a miracle to heal Lazarus, right? And they didn't even need Jesus to come, really, because they knew Jesus could speak like the centurion had faith, right? He, he could just speak the word and his servant would be healed. They knew Jesus had the power. All they needed was to tell him, as long as Jesus knew. You know, it's sort of 
Shall I say it's cute? As if Jesus didn't already know. <laughs> it's something how we have preconceived ideas, right? I mean, they believed that he was the Messiah. They believed he could do all these things, but they never stopped to think he already knows. At least I think he did because of how the story unfolds. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of, Man, uh, Son of God might be glorified thereby. And he had, after he had heard that Lazarus was sick, he still said, he still stayed two days in the same place where he was. And after a while, he just, after two days, he decided to head back towards Jerusalem. Now, his disciples said, look, Jesus, are you sure you want to go to Jerusalem? Now, this is getting near, you realize that most of the book of John is on the last few weeks of Jesus' life, right? So, this is, this is getting really close to the Passover where Jesus would be offered as the, the sacrificial lamb. He would be the sacrifice for our sins. And the disciples say, look, it's getting pretty, pretty dangerous in Jerusalem. Are you sure you want to go to Jerusalem? He says... Our friend Lazarus is sleeping. This is what he says in verse 11. Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Now the disciples are really confused. What? I mean, he's sick. Now he's sleeping. And they said to Jesus, they said, Jesus, no, 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 no. no. That's not a good reason to go back. I mean, they were sort of scared. That was the bottom line. Again, isn't that sort of cute? I mean, it's sort of sad. Three and a half years with Jesus, and they're still worried that they're scared for their own skin. So they said, Jesus, we don't want to go back to Jerusalem right now. And, and after all, if Jesus, if, if Lazarus is asleep, then he's getting better. The fever must have broke. He's getting well, right? Sleeping is good when you're sick. Why are you going to wake him up? And Jesus then said plainly, verse 14, Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is, what does he say? Dead. Dead. So first Jesus calls death asleep, and when the disciples didn't understand it, he said, Lazarus is dead. But I am glad for my sakes that I was not there, to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. The story continues as, as he gets near to Bethany, and uh, many of the Jews had come to comfort Mary and Martha, and were mourning, and they're wailing, and they're in the, at their home, and Martha heard that Jesus was coming and met him, and Mary sat, stayed in the house. And verse 21, then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatever you ask of God, God will give it you. Jesus said unto her, your brother will rise again. What did Martha say? I know he'll rise again. When? in the resurrection at the last day. When was Mar Martha's hope to see Lazarus? It wasn't, it wasn't when she would die and join him, but when he would be raised in the resurrection of the last day. That's what she said. Jesus answered and said to her, I am the resurrection of the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. Whosoever believeth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? So this reminds us of what Jesus said in the very beginning, right? What Jesus said in the very beginning is this death is not, or this sickness is not unto what? Yeah. And yet Jesus, Lazarus died. Was Jesus wrong? Or was Jesus talking about two different things here? There's the sleep of death, which is a temporary sleep. There's a sleep of death, which is a temporary sleep. And then there's eternal death, which is the wages of sin. And if we have Jesus, we will not have that eventual death. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, Jesus was just confused. Jesus was just wrong in his prediction. Jesus, Jesus said, this is not a sickness unto death, but Lazarus died. There has to be two kinds of death, doesn't there? There have to be two different kinds of death that Jesus is referring to. And so he says, he that believes in me shall never die. Well, they took him to the tomb. And, and the, by the way, then, uh, they, uh, they, 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 they uh, saw how Jesus was was groaning in spirit and was troubled. And in fact, they, they said, wow, Jesus really loved Lazarus, didn't he? And as we have the shortest verse in the Bible here, verse 35, where it says, Jesus wept. And um, they were amazed. But the Bible says in verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. 
And Martha protested, Lord, by this time he stinks. She was the practical one in the family, wasn't she? She was the, she was the cook. She was the, she was the practical one. And she's like, this is not a good idea. He was embalmed four days ago. And um, he's, he's, he stinks by now. And um, Jesus said a short prayer. And then verse 43, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And would you believe it, friends of mine? The voice of Jesus Christ pierced even the ears of a dead Lazarus that's been dead for four days. And the w- creative power of Christ's word brought Lazarus back to life. That's what the Bible says. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Can you imagine the morning turning to joy? Can you imagine the celebration, the party? I mean, after all, he that had been dead was now alive. The one whom they had lost was now restored. Lazarus was there. He was, he was alive again. They could see him. They could talk to him. He was, he was their friend. He was there. And they were able to, be, um, they were able to rejoice on, in Bethany on that day. Now, I believe that that day in Bethany is just a small preview of what is going to be at the great resurrection, the last day. That day that Martha talked about, that day that Jesus talked about. Oh, there's going to be great rejoicing in that time. There's going to be scores and scores of Lazaruses who hear the voice of Jesus, and and that voice will pierce the ears of of the dead. It will open the graves, and, and, and those who have died in Christ will come forth unto eternal life. Let's look and see what the Bible says about this event, the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. You think he's talking about what we do at nighttime when we're tired? Do you think he's talking about death? No, he's talking about death. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Why does Paul want us to be informed? Why does Paul want us to know what the truth is about death? Because he doesn't want us to be sorrowing as others who don't have hope. We as Christians, he says, have a hope in a resurrection. We as Christians know the life giver. We as Christians know that Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, who knows us by our names and who has the very hairs of our head numbered, our Savior is going to bring us to life once again. We have hope, a blessed hope. For the Lord Himself, verse 16, the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. One of the most comforting truths of the Bible, my friends, is the truth that when a person dies, he or she rests quietly undisturbed by the problems of life until the call of the life giver. That is why the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the righteous was anticipated by the early church as the blessed hope. I think it's much more comforting than thinking that my loved ones are having to watch the pain and suffering that's going on around us still today. Paul describes in detail the events that will occur on that day. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning of verse 55. Let's look with me there. Look in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read, beginning with verse 55. Paul goes into great detail about describing that day. And um, keep in mind, remember, uh, Job said, I will wait, I will wait in the darkness of the grave until my change comes. Notice with me what, how Paul describes the resurrection. Now, not everyone dies before Jesus comes. There are some who are going to be changed in a different way. But listen, this is what, this is what uh, Paul says, beginning with verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Are we there? All right. But I show you, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? 
We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Now, what's that change going to be like? This is how he describes it. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Oh, my friends, there's a change coming. Whether we live until Jesus comes or whether we are dead and resurrected, we all have a change from being mortals and and corruptible to immortal and incorruptible. This body which has aches and pains will never again have aches and pains after that change. This body which has scars and, and is prone to disease will never again, it will be a perfect, in perfect health for all of eternity because the Bible describes it as the corruptible becoming incorruptible. That's good news, isn't it? That's a blessed hope. And that's the change that Paul describes. It's the hope that, it's the change that Job hoped for as well. Verse 54, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O grave, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Listen, my friends, Jesus is conqueror and he has even conquered death in the grave. Oh, what good news the Bible holds. There's a change coming for all of us. It takes place at the second coming. Notice what he says. I want you to see it for yourselves. Don't take my word for it. Verse 52, we read it. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when? At the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. We just read in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, right? And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Paul has clearly described the same event in 1 Corinthians 15 as he was describing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The trumpet, the dead raised, the resurrection, and the change takes place from mortal to immortal, from corruptible to incorruptible. Oh, I'm looking forward to that day, aren't you? I'm looking forward to that day. This passage is in complete harmony with what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. He said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Who's, who's it talking about? Who's his voice? That's Jesus. Read it in context if you like. Um, and will come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, we're going to be talking in more detail about how there can be a resurrection of life and a resurrection of condemnation tomorrow when we talk about Revelation chapter 20 and the millennium. It's pretty clear, actually, when you, when you just understand what happens when we die, when you understand what Jesus is talking about here, as far as some coming forth under the resurrection of life, some coming forth under the resurrection of condemnation. Remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the dead in Christ rise First, we're going to be talking about all that tomorrow night. It'll be crystal clear, I do believe, as you, as you see what God's Word says. It only makes sense, friends, because if when a person died, they were to go to heaven or hell immediately, why would there need to be a resurrection? Why would there need to be a second coming? And why would Jesus have said, as He said in, in Revelation 22 and verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my what? My reward is where? With me to give every man according to his work. Why would Jesus make this statement as he comes back the second time if people had already received their reward when they passed away, when they died? It seems so plain when we just let the Bible speak for itself. When people die, they are sleeping. They're resting from their labors and troubles until Jesus comes. What is he coming for? He's coming to claim them as his own. He's coming to take them home, to be reunited with all of those who've accepted his sacrifice on their behalf. Jesus also comes to welcome his faithful followers who are still living at that time. Just listen to this good news from God's word. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Thus we shall always be where? With the Lord. Oh, it's good news, isn't it? We shall always be with the Lord. That's the promise. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, what did he say? I will come again and do what? 
receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. When are we reunited with Jesus? According to what Jesus said, it's when he comes again. I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. You know, there are some people who say, well, yeah, but there's some verses in the Bible that, that make it sound a little different. What about, for example, this is one of my favorites, what about, what about being absent from the body and present with the Lord? Have you ever heard that? What about that, Chester? What does it mean? Well, I want to know what the Bible means, do you? I want to understand what it says. And what I do know is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, the Bible writers can't disagree with one another. The same Holy Spirit that inspired David and inspired Job and inspired Solomon also inspired Paul in the New Testament, didn't it? And so we have to believe that the Bible actually agrees with itself. Um, another principle we use is that when we, when we find passages that seem to disagree with what the Bible is, is saying, we ask some questions. Is this very clear? Could it be understood more than one way? And sometimes what happens is a passage which could be understood more than one way is used to define a doctrine, even though there are passages which are actually addressing the same subject which can't be understood more than one way. You understand what I'm saying? And so there are some texts that we have to say, okay, it could mean this and it could mean that. How do we know what it means? Well, we compare it with what the Bible says elsewhere, right? And so when I think of absent from the uh, body, present with the Lord, I want to just look at that. Let's see what Paul had to say. Let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's interesting. Both of these phrases, Paul uses it twice, and both of them are in chapter 5 of his letter. And I don't want to confuse you, but 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. But um, that's for another day, because in his first letter to the Corinthians, he actually says, I wrote you earlier. So we know this is actually at least 2 Corinthians, but we don't have the first one, so it's 1 Corinthians in our Bible. Did I just confuse everyone? <laughs> We're turning in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians, um, but it wasn't the first time that Paul had written them. Put it that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And verse 3, now Paul was talking about a terrible situation which existed in the church in Corinth, a sin which was, was not even tolerated among the heathen, was being practiced in the church, and nobody was doing anything about it. And this is what he said, For verily, I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present, concerning him that has done this need. Do you see what Paul said? I wasn't there, but I really was there. Right? I wasn't there, but I was thinking about you guys, and I know I was following along, and even though I wasn't there, I was present in spirit, and I've already made my decision what needs to happen. That's what he said. I was absent in body, but I was present in spirit. Let's look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is the passage that I often hear being used to describe what happens when a person dies, and it, sometimes it's usually used to describe something that doesn't agree with what we just saw throughout the scriptures about death being a sleep, death being a resting, a waiting, a peaceful um, uh, waiting until Jesus comes again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, assuming that he's talking about this body and a better body, right? And assuming it's talking about death or that change. For in this we groan, verse 2, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so, being that clothed, we should not be found naked. Verse, verse 4, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Do you see that phrase? Very key phrase. What did we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? that mortality gets taken up by immortality. Do you see that change that takes place? So it's clear to my mind that Paul here is not talking about just any time when we die, we get a new body. He's talking about a change that takes place. This mortal takes on immortality. When did he say that would happen, according to 1 Corinthians 15? At the last trump, when the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. That's exactly when he expected that to take place. Now, if... If death is a sleep, and it's a deep sleep, I might add, there's no dreams in sleep, in that sleep, because the dead know how much? 
They know nothing. So there's, there's, have you ever hit the pillow when you're really, really tired and you're so out that you have no idea how long it's been or what time it is? Maybe, you know, I used to travel a lot and um, you know you're traveling too much when you wake up at home and you're confused about where you are, you know? Uh, where am I? Um, when you sleep really soundly and you wake up, do you know how long this time has passed? Do you know? Do you have any sense of the passing of time? No. Or is it just like your head hits the pillow, boom, the birds are singing and the sun's coming in the window? Don't you love nights when you can sleep like that? Yes. Oh, man. Uh, I wish I had more of those. Just boom, and next thing you know, it's, it's, it's daytime. Listen, if indeed death is what the Bible describes it to be, I'm convinced that when we die, the next thing we know is that trumpet sound. The next thing we know is this mortal is putting on immortality. This corruptible is putting on incorruptible. And I don't know about you, but when I was describing here what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 about, about, about this old body being a new body and, and the, the, the aches and pains going away and having a perfect health, you all got a little excited about it, didn't you? I mean, isn't that good news? I, to me, this is exactly what Paul's describing right here in, 1, in 2 Corinthians 5. We want that to happen, don't we? We're looking forward to that day. We're earnestly looking forward to that day. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not that we be unclothed, but clothed upon that immortality, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. And uh, the, now he has wrought us the same, self-same thing as God, who has given unto us the earnest of his spirit. Therefore we all are always confident, knowing that while we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are confident, verse 8, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Do you want to be absent from the body and present with the Lord? I do. I do. I believe this is good news. I can agree with everything Paul says here because he makes it very clear when that takes place, when this mortal is taken up by life, immortality. What about, what about the thief on the cross? What about that phrase which Jesus said to the thief on the cross. You remember that story, don't you? Look with me in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 and verse 42. Um, you remember that Jesus is crucified between two thieves, and one of them was mocking Jesus, and the other, after a while, became convicted, and he became convicted that he ought, to, he ought not to be mocking Jesus. And... Um, this isn't Luke chapter 23, is it? Let's see. Matthew chapter 23, that sounds more like it. Is it? Well, I'm just in the wrong book or something here. I'll find myself. Luke chapter 23, and um, yes, it is. Verse 42. So he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, right? Verse 43, Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And so when we think of this verse, many people say, Well, doesn't that mean that when Jesus died, he went to paradise? When the thief died, the thief went to paradise? Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. What does that mean? How can we understand that? And the question we have to ask is, Did Jesus mean what we usually interpret that to say? What, how we read that? Does Jesus mean that? The question is, did Jesus go to paradise that day? If we look at the Bible record, we actually see that later on, on Sunday morning, remember, he appears to Mary at the tomb, and um, he says, don't touch me. Why did Jesus say not to touch him? Jesus had not yet ascended to my Father. That's what he said. Now, this is Sunday morning. Now, when did he die? Friday. Friday. What comes after Friday. Saturday. So this is a day and a half, a good 36 hours later, Jesus has not yet ascended to my Father, according to his own words. Was Jesus lying in one place or the other? Or is there some problem with our understanding? There must be a problem with the understanding because Jesus didn't, doesn't lie. And the, 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 the story is, in fact, you can read it in John chapter 19, the thief wasn't in paradise either because, remember, they came because the Jewish leader said, we don't want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath day. That would be the next day, right? And they came and they, they broke the legs 
of the thieves. Now, I've heard two explanations of that. I'm not sure which is true. But um, one explanation is that they actually, was, the Romans were so cruel, they would, they would, they would crucify people. And, and in, in, in a crucifixion, people could last up to a week on the cross. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really terrible death. I mean, we see people crucified in the pictures with the nails in their hands, or um, uh, sometimes they put them through their wrists, but they didn't always even use nails. They would just tie them up there, just lash them up there, and, and there they were hanging, and, and you can last, you can survive for quite a while, can't you? You can live. Um, no water, of course, no food. Eventually, you're going to pass out. Or, or, and what happens generally in, in a crucifixion is, is it becomes harder and harder to breathe. You know how we typically breathe and it takes some energy for us to breathe in? The diaphragm pushes the organs down and that expands and and our lungs and air comes in. Well, when you're crucified and you're hanging by your arms, it's not hard to breathe in, it's hard to breathe out because your chest cavity is being expanded and your internal organs are slumping and they're Basically, it takes effort to breathe out that stale air so you can get fresh air in. And so what happens is there's this this ritual that takes place as people are trying to survive and live longer on a cross. They keep trying to get their feet down where they can push up and so they can breathe out in order to to be able to get fresh air in their lungs. And what what the Romans would do then is they would break the legs. So now they couldn't lift themselves up to be able to breathe anymore, and that would hasten their dying. The fact of the matter is, when sundown came, one of the three was dead. Who was that? Jesus. Jesus. The thieves didn't, the thief didn't die. His legs were broken. But that is not fatal. You're not going to die just immediately. The thief wasn't in paradise that day, and Jesus, according to his words, weren't, wasn't in paradise that day. So what did Jesus mean when he said this to the dying thief? Well, it's actually a very, very simple answer, friends. Very, very simple. And that is that in the Greek language, there is no punctuation. And do you realize that just the placement of the comma here, depending on who translates it and what they think Jesus was saying, that just the placement of the comma makes a complete difference in what the verse means. Here you see the comma, Assuredly, I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. But if we just take that comma and we move it from there to after today, you see what happens? Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see the difference? Is comma placement important? Yes, punctuation does make a difference. It really does. You know, there are plenty of examples I could give you of why punctuation is important. Um, I'll never forget the, the story of the pastor who, who met the fellow for the wedding that was supposed to be giving the scripture. You ever hear that story? He, he told, he told the, the fellow who's supposed to be reading the scripture, he said, I want you to read first John 4, 18. And um, he meant 1 John 4.18. But the man thought, he said, I want you to read 1 John 4.18. And so he dutifully got up and read John 4.18. And John 4.18 says, For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And that thou saidest truly. Not exactly the verse you want to have read at your wedding, Right? Commas make a difference. And all, all that has to be done is very simple. That comma moved from after you to after today for Jesus' words to be very, very clear. What Jesus is saying is he's, he can offer assurance then and there on that day, at that point, that the thief on the cross would be with him in paradise. Jesus promised the thief in that very hour, today I am telling, right now I am telling you, you will be with me in paradise. 
Oh, I'm so thankful that we don't have to wait until some future day to have assurance of our salvation, aren't you? Jesus can give us that assurance today. Jesus can give us that assurance right now. If we are willing to give our hearts and lives to Jesus, He will say to you like He said to that thief, it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, what crimes or sins you've committed, Jesus can still save the uttermost. Do you believe it? Do you believe He can still say, I, I'm saying to you on, on November 15, 2014, you have the assurance of salvation. What a wonderful Savior. And if we have the assurance of salvation, friends, we have the assurance of eternal life. Listen, we don't need to fear death. Not this death. Not the first death. We don't need to fear it at all. In Jesus Christ, there is assurance. The greatest gift that God can give to mankind is eternal life. Victory over death. And it's all yours for the taking. Now, why is this an important truth for us to understand. It's important, friends, because when we lose a loved one, we are comforted by the hope of the resurrection. It's important because we know when we will be reunited with them at the second coming. Understanding the truth about death is very important also, I believe, especially as we look at the study of Revelation, because I believe that, that the devil is an artful deceiver. And today we are seeing a lot of deceptions, I believe, with departed loved ones coming back and having messages, spirits of the dead speaking, something that the Old Testament solidly condemned and said God's people should not be involved with. If, if they're gone, if they can talk to us, why shouldn't we? The problem is not that they can talk to us. The problem is they can't talk to us. And when people claim to be talking to us, they're not our loved ones. They're, they're deceptions. They we, when we don't understand what happens when a person dies, we open ourselves up to great deceptions. Stories told of a missionary family. This was a number of years ago. They went to be missionaries in Africa. A good friend of mine knew this family and tells a story. In those days, you didn't just go on a plane and come back in a few weeks. They went as missionaries, and they would be gone for years at a time, come back every six years for furlough, maybe. And... Um, there they had a young family, and they had a young boy that was the joy of their life. One day that little boy got sick with malaria. And despite their best efforts of all that they could do, the medicines and the treatments and the doctors, their little boy passed away. Now you can imagine the heartache that filled that family. The father kept busy. The mother often was left at the mission station alone while the family was visiting, while the, while the husband was visiting. And one day she was in the kitchen. True story. One day she was in the kitchen. And she heard the screen door open behind her. And she turned around. And what did she see? She saw the smiling, upturned face of her little son. And a part of her said, I want to be happy. I want to welcome him and, and throw my arms around him. I want to... But she knew what the Bible said about death. She knew her son was dead and, and was waiting for the resurrection. And even as this little boy ran to towards her and said, Mommy, she said, you're not my son. You're not my son. The dead know not anything. And she tells a story that before her very eyes, her little boy changed from the form of the son that she knew and loved to an evil spirit, and then vanished away. And she knows for a fact that had she not known what the Bible teaches about death, that spirit would have told her things that weren't true, and she would have been inclined to follow them. This is why I believe, especially in the last days, I am convinced, when I look at television, when I see the movies, I am convinced that this is a growing misunderstanding, a phenomenon, you're going to see much, much more of. People coming back with messages. We've gone to heaven. We've been, to, we've been through the grave. We understand. You don't really need to follow God's word. This isn't really true. Listen, this is a time, friends, when we need to be rooted and grounded in God's word. We need to follow what God's word has to say. We need, we need what Jesus gives, and that's the assurance of eternal life. Perhaps you've wondered about death. Perhaps, like many of us, You've lost a loved one and longed to be reunited. The good news, friends, is God has a special plan for that. God is going to reunite us with our loved ones. God is the keeper of hell and the grave. 
God is going to open those tombs and those dead are going to hear His voice and they are going to come forth and together we're going to be caught up together with the, uh, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What a wonderful day that's going to be when this mortal takes on immortality, this corruptible takes on incorruption. Oh, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the truth of the Bible. The dead are really dead. They're sleeping. It's a temporary sleep if they knew Jesus because they're going to be awakened on the resurrection morning. The life giver will come and with him will come that trumpet sound that will wake the dead. I'm thankful for Jesus, aren't you? I'm thankful that he has conquered death, that he came victorious from the grave and that he is alive forevermore. Amen. I'm thankful. And I want to commit and recommit my heart to the life giver tonight. How about you? You want to recommit your life to the one who is life? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, today we just realize that you have a better plan, that in this life, this world of sin, we don't, we don't understand, we don't know all there is to know, but we do know one thing, we can trust your hand, we can trust your heart. We thank you that the Bible is clear. We thank you that though there are passages which we might have to study and try to understand, that there are so many passages speaking about the very topic which are abundantly clear. And we just pray, we just pray that we might rejoice in the blessed hope, that we might not sorrow as those who have no hope, but that we might know Jesus and to know Him as eternal life, that we might know that, that those who trust in Him, though they die, they just sleep but a moment and, and they'll be awakened in that day. Father, we long for that time. We look forward to the time. We groan. We, 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 we look forward to the day when this corruptible will put on incorruption when we will be changed. With Job, we want to say, may that day come. With John, we want to say, Lord, quickly come. We want to look forward and see that even, even we pray that it might be in our day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.